Sanders. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone to the Dr. Hedberg Show. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I'm excited today to have Dr. Carrie Jones on the show. I've been uh, listening to her and reading her material for some time now, and I've also heard her speak in person. So Dr. Jones is a, is a naturopath, and she's definitely an expert on hormones, and we'll be talking about all the different hormones today. So, Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Hedberg. I appreciate you having me on. Hormones is my favorite subject. Great. Great. So, why don't you just fill everyone in on what you're working on these days and and your area of expertise? Yeah, so, um, well, like you said, hormones is it. So I went to school and did my residency in all things women's health, hormones, and gynecology, and uh, expanded a little bit into men's health and hormones just by default as women would bring the men in in their life, and they would say, he has a hormone problem too. So I always joke, my ongoing joke is that if you, um, something's wrong with your child, don't ask me, and if you hurt yourself, like you hurt your knee, don't ask me that either. But if you're a hormonal mess, I, I can help you with that. That's what I'm good at. <laughs> right, right. So you, uh, you work for uh, Precision Analytical, which is the lab that I use for hormone testing, and they do the Dutch test. So why don't we, um, <clears throat> why don't we jump in and, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> why don't we jump into the first hormone which is, uh, I always like to start with progesterone. So and why don't we start with uh, cycling females. So can you talk a little bit about what may be some of the reasons why we would either see high or low progesterone in a cycling female? Yeah, and actually we'll start with the low because I think that's, um, uh, well, a lot more common. So there's mm-hmm. there are two reasons that a cycling female will be low. One is she does not ovulate. So when a woman releases an egg, um, she has two sets of cells around her follicles and they convert into a third set of cells called the lutein cells. And that's what makes progesterone. So if she doesn't release the egg, then she's not going to get that little conversion and she's not going to make progesterone. Now, the other reason, the second big reason is she may ovulate. She might release an egg. She feels it. She notices it, her mucus changes, what have you. She gets, she does the, you know, ovulation predictor kits from the grocery store. It's positive. And still her progesterone might be pretty low, pretty weak. And then the reason for that is that those cells that are supposed to make progesterone, they themselves are weak. And so we have to do something to to pump up the cells. So if you don't ovulate and or these cells are pretty weak, you get low progesterone. And most women will, they'll feel, um, well, let me tell you what progesterone does. Progesterone is our calming, soothing, relaxing, kind of everything's going to be okay hormone. So if you don't feel calm, soothed, or relaxed, especially in that second half of your cycle, uh, then it's 
potentially a low progesterone problem. Um, progesterone helps with sleep, it helps reduce anxiety, and it's, it's our progestation hormone, so it helps with fertility, it, it primes, um, it's one of the primers for the uterus, it helps with implantation, it helps maintain the fetus in the first you know, six to 10 weeks until the placenta is strong enough to take over. So we need progesterone, but those are the two big reasons why it might be low. You don't ovulate or your actual cells aren't doing so well. Mm-hmm. And where would you factor stress into that and how that might be affecting the pituitary? Wouldn't that also be a potential factor? Yeah, it'll block ovulation and not so much block, but it will, um, you know, the body, if it's in fight or flight, then reproduction is not its, its first thought. In fact, there's this really great quote. It's probably my most favorite quote um, that I've read in the research. And it's talking about norepinephrine, the hormone, which is also known as noradrenaline. It's one of your adrenal hormones um, besides cortisol. And the quote says that if you are a, a norepinephrine dominant person, if you have a lot of stress in your life, then your body will direct you away from um, repair, maintenance, and reproduction, and it will direct you towards um, mobilizing your resources to dealing with the stress, to running, you know, to you know, to to handle the fight or the flight. And I think that's a really key quote because if you are very, if you have a lot going on in your life. If you're very stressed out, if you've you know either physically or you know emotionally, or you know you've got viruses and bacteria and things you're fighting internally. Uh, relationships you're in, your body will direct you away from reproduction. And when you get directed away from reproduction, you don't ovulate. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) often, regularly, (laughs) like you're supposed to. (laughs) So yeah, stress can absolutely redirect ovulation. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm aware, if if progesterone is low in in a cycling female, as far as interventions other than using uh, progesterone itself, I know Vitex, Chase Treeberry has been used. Are you aware of, of anything else that uh, can help balance progesterone? Yeah. So you, a vitamin B6 is a really good one. Um, that one is helpful for FSH and, and um, LH stimulation. If you're, if you're not ovulating, obviously trying to figure out why. Is it a thyroid problem? Is it you know, a brain problem? Do you, are you taking something such as you know, a steroid inhaler or steroid medication? or um, you know, steroid nasal spray that's, that's inhibiting the ovulation. Um, are you on pain medications? Pain medications will block ovulation. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge number of factors for ovulations, but the chase tree I love, vitamin B6. Um, I do use um, something called glandulars. Do you use glandulars? Do you like glandulars? A, f- a few, yeah. Mm-hmm. So people are very more familiar with sort of adrenal glandulars, but there are um, ovarian glandulars. And so I will use those sort of more nourishing, um, to the, to the, uh, to the ovaries. Mm-hmm. I also use, um, some oils. So evening primrose oil, which is a good one, uh, borage oil, which is another good one. And then, um, to support the cells themselves, the cells that make progesterone are called lutein cells. And they're, they're collectively known as the corpus luteum or luteum and lutein being they're from, they're from your orange and your red family of foods they're high in lutein and, and, you know, carotenoids. So the beta carotene, vitamin A, lutein, those sort of things. So I tell people, you know, eat, eat your orange and your, your red veggies, eat your tomatoes, eat your, your orange sweet potatoes, you know, eat your apricots, eat those things, um, your red and orange peppers, because it can be really nourishing for those cells. Mm-hmm. And 
let's not forget about the guys when it comes to progesterone. So I'll throw you a little curveball. This maybe it's an easy answer for you, but what are you thinking when you see high progesterone in men? Um, I know it's it's pretty rare, but I've I've seen it here and there. On the Dutch test, we see high progesterone commonly associated with high estrogen and high cortisol. And when we see men get their estrogen under control and their cortisol goes down, their progesterone tends to follow suit. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're noticing that as well, but usually when people say, what do I do about progesterone? I say, if you just address the estrogen and the cortisol in this man, his progesterone Mm -hmm. will improve. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see that quite a bit. Um, Elevated estrogen and then elevated uh, beta glucuronidase on mm-hmm. their stool tests and things like that. So, yep, excellent. Why don't we shift into estrogen? So we have estradiol, estrone, estriol, mm-hmm. and what are you what are you thinking? Let's start again with the cycling female when you see highs and lows in those those hormones. Yeah. So if I see high estrogen, then um, one of, well, a, a couple of things. One, she's either much like men, women make their estrogen con- from the conversion of tostos- uh, testosterone, which is called aromatization. So testosterone converts into estrogen. But two, which I don't think people realize the, um, you know, the estrogen, estrogenic chemicals in our environment, the endocrine disruptors. Um, research is showing that things like BPA, Bisphenol A, which are in our plastic water bottles and you know our thermal receipts, and they line our our cans, our canned foods, um, can actually raise estradiol E2 uh, itself. We used to think it was more just an endocrine receptor binder, but it will actually in, increase um, mm-hmm. estradiol. So you have to be really careful there. And then the the third thing I really think about is just um, poor detoxification. So maybe you're making totally normal levels of estrogen but you can't clear it. Your phase one, your phase two in your liver, and then your phase three uh, in your bile and your intestines. And like you said earlier, beta-glucuronidase, which is an enzyme, um, aren't functioning properly. And so you get this backup of estrogen that can't drain out of your body. That's usually what I think of when I see high estrogen. Of course, I'm assuming they're not on estrogen too. (laughs) They're not taking something. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the guys, it's, it's, Pretty much the same thing, isn't it? It's the exact same thing. Men do aromatize. I see, you probably see, I'm sure you see this too, that bigger and stronger, um, that aromatase enzyme is, is really high in fat tissue um, and it's high, it can be high in muscle as well, but primarily in fat tissue. So as men are um, you know, getting more body fat, um, then they tend to notice their estrogen type symptoms. They'll get even more body fat. They'll get breast development. Um, they'll get sort of mood changes, depression, unmotivation, fatigue. They'll notice erectile issues. So it all sounds very low testosterone, um, but really uh, it could be coupled. It could definitely be high estrogen as well. Mm-hmm. But men detox just like women do. So we have to look at their phase one, two, and three, just like we do with women. Exactly. And so our our postmenopausal women, the progesterone estrogen is going to be low. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was talking to a, a doctor the other day, and you know, there's just there's so many different camps about hormones. There's you know one camp that thinks that uh, we should test our hormones when we're older, and 
basically get them to the levels they were when we were in our 20s. And then there's the other group that says, well, it's just a normal part of aging. Women go into menopause and that's a normal thing. And then there's, you know, kind of a gray area. It just depends on the individual's goals and their symptoms and, and what they're dealing with. So what do you, what do you think about that, that question of how, how specific and how much which should we really focus on trying to get those hormone levels up to what they were when we were younger? I'm definitely the gray area person. So what I've seen over the years is that, so the camp that believes, um, you know, menopause is, isn't, you know, just it's a natural ray of life and your hormones should go down. I mean, I absolutely believe that menopause, is, you know, real, it happens. But what I have noticed or what I've seen is even though we can't test for the age of which a woman, a woman will go into menopause, there's sort of this predetermined, you know, once she's out of follicles, when she's sort of getting lower and lower and lower of her follicles on her ovaries, then she's losing the, the ability to produce estrogen and then subsequently progesterone like she used to. So there's sort of this preset age. We just, we don't know collectively, but her body, her ovaries seem to know. But what I see though, is a variety of factors will speed the process along. So if internally a woman is supposed to go through menopause at 50, and I don't mean perimenopause, but like she's supposed to be done with her periods at 50, but yet through a variety of factors, environmental stress, you know, infections, what have you, she's speeding up her diet, you know, lack of sleep. She's speeding this up and she goes through it at 45. It's like a big, that's a big five-year gap where she might say, I'm very symptomatic. Like I, I have terrible hot flashes and night sweats. I, my memory is terrible. My joints hurt. Um, my anxiety is worse. I'm not sleeping. And I think that's, not healthy. <laughs> mm -hmm, so right. that's why I'm in the gray area. I mean, I, yes, I, I totally agree when, you know, once women get into their forties and early fifties, like menopause is inevitable, but, um, it's the, it's the crash and burn that I, that I'm like, Whoa, this is, this is mm -hmm. not healthy. This is not good. This is increasing your risk when you lose out on all that hormone for, you know, Alzheimer's cardiovascular disease, you know, you, everything sort of dries up. They get dry eyes, dry vagina, dry skin lose loss of collagen, you know, all this stuff. And it's just it can be really shocking. And so I fall into the gray area of if that's you, like, let's do something about it. But I don't, I don't personally subscribe to the um, belief that if I'm 50 years old, I should have the hormones of my 21 year old self. Um, I think I should be, I should be on enough to be, you know, hormone or support, whatever the support is that I'm, relatively symptom-free, feeling good, doing good, have some prevention, but I don't, I don't need to get my cycle back. I don't need to get periods again at, at 50 years old if I've already lost it. Um, and I definitely don't feel I need to be that of a 21-year-old. I know there are people who disagree with me. That's just my own personal mm -hmm. gray area person. Now, if you're 50 years old and you're like, you're listening to this and you're like, well, I don't have any symptoms. I feel great. I went into menopause with no problem. I don't have brain fog or joint pain or anxiety, I sleep great, you know, my moods are great, then great. Mm -hmm. Girl, just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. I, I just let's bottle up what you've got and sell that. <laughs> right, right, so that's exactly. The, that's the camp that I fall into. Yeah, yeah, I do as well. It just like, I mean, that's just kind of the, the bedrock of functional medicine is it, it really is about the individual mm -hmm. and uh, what their needs are and, and what they're going through.
Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, everyone's so different. I mean, I've seen men in their 80s with robust, uh, you know, sexual function and mm-hmm. health and good muscle mass. And maybe their testosterone isn't what it was when they were in their 20s, but why mess with it? Right. So. And then you've probably seen men in their 20s who have testosterone mm-hmm. of an 80-year-old, you know, like what mm-hmm. you would think. They, they come to you at 20, 22, 24, 26 and say, I have all these symptoms. What's going on with me in my twenties? Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's scary. Mm-hmm. And then we're seeing that more and more. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, let's talk about testosterone then. So testosterone in women and you know, you may agree or, or disagree, but that's the one hormone in women where I would definitely be the most cautious. And I may actually focus a lot more on, using some dietary strategies and exercise mm-hmm. strategies to increase testosterone before jumping to that. Cause it is so strong. Cause I've seen so many women come in on testosterone and their voice has dropped <laughs> quite a bit, even yeah. with just, even just with a really small amount and, mm-hmm. and some other things as well. So what are you thinking when you see uh, low testosterone in women and then, and then high you know, we're thinking things like PCOS, PCOS and things yeah. like that. Well, with low testosterone, um, well, testosterone in women is actually made in three places, which I think people forget on like, you know, men primarily just make it out of the testicles. But in women, we make it in our ovaries and we make it out of our adrenal glands. And then we do make it, we can um, make it in our fat tissue. Unfortunately, for like the more fat tissue you have, doesn't does not necessarily correlate to the more testosterone you have. So I do have women with low testosterone who do have excess fat tissue that say, well, what's what's the problem? <laughs> but the the adrenals and the ovaries both make testosterone. So I tell women if you are if your HPA, if your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is not great, if the communication's not there, if your cortisol production is is quite low, there's a chance you're the, the layer that does your androgens, like your testosterone, will be low as well. Just like as women, if their um, ovarian function is not that good, either they're young and cycling, but they're having trouble, you know, they're irregular or don't have a period, or maybe they're menopausal and they don't have a period anymore because of age, you're not going to be producing testosterone from those cells that are on the follicle. And so I, I look to first see you know, where, where could the problem be? Is it an ovarian issue? Is it an adrenal issue? Is it a both issue? And so I work from that standpoint. So if they, if they're irregular cycles or no cycles or something's going on that I'm trying to get the ovaries back on track to bring that part of the testosterone production up, same with the adrenal, focus on adrenal, focus on brain to adrenal communication. Um, but then I do think like, like zinc, you know, I do a lot of nutrient stuff for testosterone. I'll do herbs like um, maca, which is a Peruvian herb. I'll do tribulus, which is a um, Bulgarian herb. Um, I'll do an Indian herb called shatavari um, Mm -hmm. just to help. They mostly help. They don't necessarily help per se raise testosterone. They kind of help alleviate those low testosterone symptoms and just make her feel good overall in that family of hormones. But, But zinc especially, I find zinc to be low quite a bit. And that's a huge one. And same for men, a huge one for making testosterone. So that's what I do with testosterone. Now, do I, do I use testosterone in practice? I do. I, I'm with you though. I don't, I jump, don't jump right into testosterone and I definitely work with diet and get her lifting weights. 
you know, get her, get some muscle on her, get her muscle mass up there mm-hmm. to try or try to, and, um, go that route first. Cause I don't, I, I would see a lot of, um, fallout from too much testosterone in my practice, especially, and I'm not against the pellet, but I'm very cautious about the testosterone pellet. I know lots of women love it, mm. but I would see quite a number of women who were like, I hate this. I have chin hair and I'm angry and you know, like what is going, I have acne again and I'm, you know, 38 or 42 or 51 or whatever age they are. Like what is wrong with me? Because you have this big pellet of testosterone in you and your body is trying to quickly process it. It's not doing very well. So you get all the bad side effects. Right. I found with, with men, the, one of the real keys to testosterone is sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably overlooked more than, than a lot of things, but when you really dig with men and you, and you figure it out that their sleep isn't really optimal, you can, I mean, you can significantly increase their testosterone levels just by getting the sleep. Um, their deep sleep in particular, right? It's that slow wave sleep when, when men make testosterone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. I actually learned, because I don't do as, like I said, I don't do as much men's health, but a really good friend of mine, Dr. Ralph Esposito is a men's health expert. And so he's always teaching me these little things about men's health, right. <laughs> men's testicles, <laughs> sleep. Yeah. So he taught we, me that. We could, men could definitely use some more, some more help in the healthcare arena. That's for sure. I know they get, they get forgotten because women are so outspoken about their own health, but they, uh, they have just as many hormone issues. Right. Plus we don't talk about it and we don't go to the doctor if we have a problem. So that's true. That's true. Um, and I mentioned, uh, you know, PCOS insulin resistance. Do you have any, uh, strategies for, for those women who have PCOS? Yeah. So that's when, when women have high testosterone, um, this there, you have cells on your follicles, they're theca cells and they make your testosterone, um, when you're looking at ovaries and they're heavily stimulated by insulin. So the more insulin you have, if you're insulin resistance, then, uh, oftentimes the more testosterone you have. So if you can address your insulin diet, obviously diet lifestyle, you know, again, that weightlifting hit training, high intensity interval training to try to burn up you know, the glucose gets your insulin better. But from a supplement point of view, my two favorites are uh, inositol and Mm -hmm. um, berberine, which is my other, Mm -hmm. my other favorite for, for insulin um, to try to improve insulin resistance. And then along with that, I've been doing a lot of research into the hormone leptin, which Mm -hmm. leptin is not tested on the Dutch test, but it's oftentimes when, when men and women have insulin resistance, they often have leptin resistance. Leptin is one of the hormones made out of your fat tissues and it helps tell your brain you're full. But if you're leptin resistant, your brain never hears that you're full and it doesn't stimulate the processes to get your, to burn up energy and, you know, improve your metabolism. And so people tend to keep hold of their fat tissue, in fact, even expand Mm -hmm. it and grow more. So, um, I, so work, I usually work between those two hormones when it comes to PCOS. Now, mm-hmm. other herbs I really like, though, um, uh, peony, which like the flower. <laughs> peony right. can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Licorice, peony and licorice together. There's actually a lot of research on that, especially in Chinese medicine, um, white peony and licorice together. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful with licorice, though, for blood pressure and um, potassium. I had two patients in practice 
did not stop their licorice and they were on high, they put themselves on high doses and just stayed on it and uh, put themselves in the hospital, unfortunately, with low potassium. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very real, but it can help lower testosterone. And then, as I said earlier, and as we, well, we talked about earlier, um, women, especially who have high testosterone and get all those symptoms they don't like, you know, the, the dark chin hair, the mustache, the uh, dark hair around the nipple and the belly, um, cystic acne, anger, irritation, mood swings, male pattern baldness, what have you. It's because your testosterone and, and the associated hormones, androgens, they're going down the wrong pathway. <laughs> they're going down what's called the alpha pathway or the 5-alpha reductase pathway. And that 5-alpha is the one that kind of like really brings on that, those symptoms, acne, hair growth, male pattern baldness, what have you. And so we try to, um, in those women, we try to, again, reduce insulin, reduce stress, reduce inflammation, because those things will stimulate that pathway. And then we try to use um, supplements that are specifically, we call them 5-alpha blockers, um, generically. Mm-hmm. But again, things like zinc, zinc is really helpful. Saw palmetto, stinging nettle root, um, EGCG, which is the one of the active ingredients in green tea, all can help sort of lower those symptoms, lessen that pathway, you know, take the, take the gas pedal off. Mm-hmm. And I joke to women because they're the, all the supplements that are in prostate formula. So I'll have women say, the title says prostate support. I'm like, I know, I know. It's, <laughs> I need the stuff inside. <laughs> right. Pumpkin seeds are good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would also add uh, N-acetylcysteine for oh, yeah. PCOS. And then I've gotten, in the real difficult cases, I've gotten excellent results with the ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then if that's, I mean, that can be too difficult for a lot of people to follow mm-hmm. for a long period of time. But there is some, some good information out there on high-protein diets yes. reducing uh, 5-alpha reductase. Yep. So let's shift into the adrenals and talk about DHEA. And DHEA is interesting. You know, it was, there was, it was really popular. I think it was back in the early 90s. There was a lot of press about it as this anti-aging hormone. And a lot of people took it and and screwed themselves up, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. But so when you're seeing a high or or low DHEA, what are you thinking? Well, when I see a high DHEA, uh, well, one of the reasons it can be is is associated with PCOS. So I, you know, look at other markers there. Um, DHEA can actually increase by certain medications. So I check the medication list. So Wellbutrin which is an you know, antidepressant, um, Xanax, which is an anti-anxiety, and then um, some of the ADD, ADHD medications will actually inadvertently raise DHEA. So it may be high because medication, got to be careful there. But DHEA will also increase in response to cortisol. DHEA can counter the effect of cortisol in the brain. And so if somebody has a lot of stress going on, they're very, you know, they have a lot of cortisol, a lot of cortisol being produced, and their DHEA is high then I don't actually worry about it as much. I'm going to focus much more on, on their stress reduction efforts, lifestyle, uh, even supplements if I need to, to help get their cortisol back in check. And then oftentimes I'll see the DHEA come down with it as well. Um, and then again, assuming this is assuming they're not taking anything with DHEA in it um, mm-hmm. to, to drive it up there. 
But I'm not, I used to be really concerned when I saw high DHEA, but as I do more and more and more research into DHEA because of my job and just nerd curiosity, um, I'm, I'm not as concerned. It's not, it's not damaging, you know, like cortisol can be really damaging. Cortisol is good. We shouldn't vilify it. It's it's anti-inflammatory and good for the immune system and, you know, good for blood sugar and all these things. But when it's too high for too long, then it can actually be damaging. And I want my DHEA to help protect my brain and counter its effects. So I tend to go more, all right, why? What's triggering it to be high and go that route instead? Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah, that's mainly it's, that's what I see it as, as a response to stress. Um, it's elevated and it's having just basically an adaptation to mm-hmm. high cortisol levels. That's mainly how I see it. And then inflammation, of course, but mm-hmm. Have you have you found anything? Have you found good information on the conversion of DHEA into other hormones in men versus women? Do you know which pathways it, it's going to be most likely to go down at each gender? Um. Well, you mean like if you give DHEA or if you're just yeah. making. Yeah, if, so, if you yeah, so, DHEA, is it more likely to convert to testosterone or estrogen? It is not. No, it's actually, well, what we see at the lab, um, and actually it was Mark Newman, who owns the lab, mm-hmm. pointed it out to me. He said, you notice all these men on DHEA, their estrogen tends to go up. So DHEA converts, can convert into another hormone, androstenedione, especially in the fat tissue. And then that gets aromatased into estrogen. And so we do tell practitioners we you know keep an eye on their est- the men's that man's estrogen because if you're going to put them on 25 50 100 milligrams of DHEA and all these estrogen symptoms happen he's he's getting that aromatization action now with women though i don't see that as much now women are on much uh, typically much smaller doses somewhere between 1 and 10 milligrams 25 milligrams tops but usually the average woman's on five to 10 milligrams um, of, of DHEA. So it may be too, you know, just a gender difference. She's not going to take that, it's not this big bolus of a dose and make a whole lot of estrogen. Um, and uh, in women's aromatase is, uh, I think is a, is a little bit different. It's more concentrated in the ovaries. Um, and that's DHEA doesn't get pulled in there. Uh, to, you know, if you take it orally, it's not getting pulled in the ovaries. That's not how the biochemistry works. But I do see in women, though, they are more prone to get that, again, that 5-alpha pathway. So women will take DHEA, and if, if you're not watching that 5-alpha pathway, they will say, I took that supplement, and I got angry. <laughs> I took that supplement, right. and I got acne you know, or, or anxiety or, or whatever. My chin hair got a lot worse. And so I see them stay more in the androgen field and go down that alpha pathway. Mm-hmm. With, with women. So it's interesting. Men get more estrogen and again, not everybody, not always, but, and women send, tend to get more of the men's side effects that, you know, that angry, irritated side effect. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I've seen is men who take DHEA, their androstenedione and, and estrogens tend to go up. And then mm-hmm. the women are most likely going to have increases in androgens and i'm glad you brought up the dosing because i've always used about two to five milligrams to start in women and 
five to 15 milligrams in men. And these higher, I've just never really understood or actually needed these really high doses, 25, 50 milligrams, unless if it's a really kind of disabled, uh, like rheumatoid arthritis patient mm. or lupus patient, then I would use levels that high. But just for general replacement, don't you think those doses are too high? I do. Yeah, I think. And I think people jump into them. I think um, what I will see is, you know, they'll jump into 50, 75, 100 milligrams to start. And I'm like, wow, way to slam that person. Why don't we we just ease into this like real nice like and see what happens. And it's the same with women. When I give DHEA, I tend to, um, this is just personal preference. There's a liquid DHEA that I like because they can literally do it by the drop. So I'll say, start with one drop, just one. And this is for women. And I'll say, you know, go up to two, go up to three. And then, you know, the cap is usually 10 drops. And, and then they can, they can decide for themselves, like, wow, I feel great at six drops. Seven, I feel anxious or whatever. I broke out at seven, you know, that, or I can back out. I, you know, some days I only need four drops. Some days I need eight drops. I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. That's, that's perfect. We can, we can do these little tiny doses. And, and I, I'm the same with you. I usually start women out on DHEA at about well, to say it like I, that's why I said one milligram because <laughs> yeah, I'm usually right. starting out with one milligram. <laughs> one to five is usually good, unless it's for fertility. There is some research with stubborn, stubborn infertility um, and low follicle count uh, to do high dose of DHEA. In fact, if memory serves, I think the dose was 75 milligrams, which is a lot of DHEA for a woman, a lot. So be very careful. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there is some research for fertility purposes, specific fertility purposes to go much higher. But for the average woman, I'm very low like you. So one of the things I like about the Dutch test is the breakdown of cortisol. So we get the free cortisol, metabolized cortisol, cortisone, and, and all the metabolites. So you get a lot of information there. Mm-hmm. So what are you, what are you thinking? Obvi- well, obviously stress is going to kind of be at the bedrock of a <laughs> lot of these cortisol <laughs> issues, but anything else like inflammation, insulin resistance, anything else to oh, add? For sh- yeah, for sure. So uh, we do look, so Dutch looks at, like you said, metabolized cortisol, free cortisol and free cortisone. So it answers the questions. Can you make it? what's free and available and what's getting deactivated. And so when I see a lot of metabolized cortisol, then I, I start to think fight or flight reasons, infection, inflammation, obesity, um, you know, fat tissue can convert cortisone into cortisol. Um, I start hyperthyroidism um, will mm-hmm. really increase cortisol. Um, insulin resistance. So all of those eye things, infection, inflammation, and insulin resistance, um, those, well, absolutely. Stress, high stress will drive it up. Now, what drops it down when somebody might have low metabolized cortisol, believe it or not, the most common reason is a thyroid problem, a slow, a hypothyroid problem, whether overt, like they actually have you know, a high TSH and low T4, T3. But even subclinical, we will see lots of sort of subclinical sort of gray area thyroid problems thyroid starting to develop, autoimmune starting to develop, and it will absolutely directly immediately impact the adrenal axis. And so we'll mm-hmm. see it on the Dutch test and point it out to people, 
hey, if you haven't yet, you need to consider doing a full thyroid panel because it's starting to show up in the adrenals. The thyroid is having an impact on the way the adrenals are producing and metabolizing the cortisol. But that's not the only reason. Um, again, all adrenal communication starts in the brain. So I've definitely had people with you know, history of traumatic brain injury, concussion, and if that affects the hypothalamus or the pituitary, it's gonna affect communication downstream as well, and slow it down possibly. Certain medications, steroid medications I mentioned earlier, so whether it's, um, you know, you're on the sort of um, black market steroids that you're getting at your gym, or if you're on prednisone, or if you're even doing, like, you know, you use inhalers that are steroid inhalers for your asthma or steroid nasal sprays for your allergies, steroid creams for your, you know, rash, that will all impact um, slow down the ability of your brain to make, to communicate with the adrenals to make cortisol. Accutane, which is the um, acne medication that people take in their teens and early 20s, there's some research to show that it, it can impact the cells of the hypothalamus. And, I, and since I found this research, I actually found it through an endocrinologist. Um, mm -hmm. And it, as I tell people, I've had multiple men and women say to me, oh my gosh, I actually had a horrible experience with Accutane. I was so tired. I was so moody. I was not myself. I was, it was, I was absolutely impacted by it. I didn't realize what it, you know, potential effects on the hypothalamus. I'm like, yeah, there's actually research to show this. Um, you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. And so all this stuff um, will, you know, will slow down or impact communication down to the adrenal. So it can actually, one point to stress, absolutely, but it can also point to other issues like, like thyroid, like insulin, like inflammation, like the medication you're taking mm -hmm. and show you what's going on with the adrenals. Right. And one of kind of controversial term that's used out there is adrenal fatigue. And <laughs> I'll give you, let me give you my take on it and then, okay. and then yours. Um, so this is a, a term that most patients are coming in using and uh, just cause they've, they've read about it online and then there's been some books, you know, called adrenal fatigue. Now there was a, a paper published, I think it was just a few years ago out of Europe and the authors, you know, just sort of quote unquote debunked adrenal fatigue. Uh, the way I see it is it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And if a patient's, if every single cortisol marker is in the tank and their DHEA and all the DHEA metabolites are in the tank, then I'll have that conversation and I might use that term, but I'll explain to them that a lot of this has a lot more to do with your brain than it does than necessarily the gland itself. So what is your, your take on that term and how do you look at it? <laughs> This is one of my most favorite topics ever besides estrogen detoxification. So right. <laughs> I, t I tell people, unless it's Addison's, so Addison's disease is adrenal, autoimmune adrenal atrophy, which is when you truly can't make cortisol. Mm -hmm. um, I am in the exact same camp as you. So adrenal fatigue, just like you said, got very popularized because well, one, it's easy to say, two, it's sexy, and three, <laughs> Books have been written, right? Quizzes are online and, you know, we all got, I got taught adrenal fatigue, it's adrenal fatigue until you realize that the adrenals don't just give out. Again, I'm, this, this is not Addison's disease. This is just general everyday, your everyday person without autoimmune. 
Um, and so the adrenals, they're not like the ovary, like they don't run out of cells. They don't, you know, they don't go into menopause. It's there. And they're at the, they're at the complete discretion of the brain. And so if the adrenals are not making cortisol or even DHEA or any of the hormones for that matter, um, they don't think for themselves really. And so they, they, there's the brain that's the, the hypothalamus to the pituitary saying, all right, make cortisol, make a lot of cortisol. Okay. Slow down on the cortisol. And so if you have low cortisol production, low free cortisol, low DHEA, like you said, then I'm looking up, I'm looking higher um, because you, you don't run out of cortisol and you, you don't run out of adrenaline. You don't run out of noradrenaline. It's, it's produced. Um, so I'm, I'm looking up, I'm looking higher for sure at the brain. Yep. That's I'm in the same. So I understand. And I tell people, cause people get very, um, and you probably experienced this. They get very angry when I, Mm-hmm. Uh, have lectured or <laughs> I've done some, you know, YouTube stuff and other just education about adrenal fatigue and they get very, very angry and they say, no, I have adrenal fatigue. You're wrong. And I'm like, no, I, like I a hundred percent agree with your symptoms. I'm not taking your symptoms away from you or devaluing them. I think they are legit. You are tired and you were, you know, at your wit's end and you're having trouble coping and you're feeling overwhelmed and you need, mm-hmm. you know, I a hundred percent agree with you, but it's just the term adrenal fatigue. It's, it's more HPA axis dysfunction, which is harder to say, not quite as sexy <laughs> and a lot more to write down. So um, I, you, it's the concept, the symptoms I think are very real. The mm-hmm. way we think about it, oh, your adrenals just run out of cortisol. Nah, unless they have Addison's, they don't. Mm-hmm. They really don't. We have to look bigger and better and higher. And I think that's changing. I think the more people um, like you and I that are, you know, talking about it and, and as people are realizing the, the pathophysiology of it are going, oh, oops, like we should have looked, we, it's actually, it's much bigger than we think and, and we need to think of it from the brain down. Mm-hmm. So I think it's slowly changing. It's just adrenal fatigue is easy to say. And so people, I see a lot of people put it in air quotes now. You right. have adrenal fatigue, air quotes, but you know what I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or they'll talk to me and they're like, my patient has adrenal fatigue. Well, you know what I mean? Like not you know what I mean by that, right? I'm like, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of qualifiers now. So yes, symptoms are real. It's, we have to think bigger, higher. Yes. It's, you know, sometimes when you, if someone has developed a, a particular belief or an attachment to, mm-hmm. to a, a label or a condition they have, then, then you challenge that, then it makes them uncomfortable. And it's not just adrenal right. fatigue. It's, it's a lot of disorders. Right. Right. And like, that's why, I, that's why I'm qualified now um, that I'm not taking their symptoms away. I, I fully believe their symptoms and I want to address their symptoms. I want them to get better. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the notion that the, the adrenal cells don't make cortisol or mm-hmm. epinephrine or norepinephrine or DHEA anymore. Again, unless it's Addison's, it's just it's not right. how it works. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why it gets, I get that this theme gets perpetuated and I'm like, well, actually guys, like, real biochemistry and physiology. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. So the wrong, the wrong idea is getting perpetuated. We need to re reeducate about this. So as far as, as testing goes, so obviously, you know, I like the, the Dutch tests. And for those people who don't know, this is a urine spot testing. So it's urine tests taken throughout the day. And it's been shown to be very, very, uh, similar to a 24-hour urine without mm-hmm. the um, inconvenience of going in a jug all day. 
And so basically we have urine testing, saliva, and, and blood. And I know that the, the Dutch test now also does some saliva um, as well when, we you, when, you, when you do the test. And now there, there's one hormone, though, that, that I'll always do in the blood along with that, and that's a free and total testosterone because that's kind of the only one that I'm not 110% confident in. So can you talk about the different forms of testing and where you might want to use one over the other? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you And I'm about the testosterone, and I say that as the medical director um, only because a lot of times you want the total, the free, and even this, the sex hormone, bi- sex hormone binding globulin, the SHBG, um, which you can't get in urine or saliva for that matter. It's long degraded. Um, so you can only get that in, in the blood work. So with, with blood and with saliva, you get in sort of in the moment. If you want a progesterone, if you want a testosterone, if you want an, an estrogen, um, then j- you know just that one single marker, then that's when you get your blood drawn or that's when you would, you would do the saliva. Now saliva became popularized because of the cortisol aspect. You could, you, if you wanted to see your cortisol pattern through the day, then you obviously don't want to get your blood drawn at four or five increments in the day. That's annoying and painful. And so then so saliva became quite popular because you could just spit in a tube in the morning around lunch, around dinner and before bed. And that was easy and not invasive. And, and you would get your cortisol throughout the day. And now you could see why am I tired you know, in the morning? Why can't I sleep at night? Why do I crash in the afternoon? You could follow your cortisol. The, now the issue with both the blood and the saliva is that you can't get your pathways. So you can't get your phase one or phase two estrogen detoxification, which we talked about earlier. We, you can't get your, you can't really get a, your, a look at your, where does your testosterone go? Do you go down that five alpha pathway we talked about? And so what people were doing was then taking blood work or taking saliva and adding in a 24-hour urine test, which is like you said, you collect your urine for 24 hours on this big orange or big red jug, which could become a problem if you have to go to work um, or run errands or you know travel somewhere that you have to carry this big jug with you. It's kind of awkward. So that entered in the spot urine testing where you could get your hormones, progesterone, testosterone, estrogen, but because it's urine as well, you would get the pathway. So you would get your estrogen and then you could watch um, watch where it goes in phase one and phase two detox. You could get your DHEA, your testosterone, and then you could watch the downstream pathways, the metabolites, as we call it. Are you going down the five alpha, the five beta? And then with cortisol, you could you could get your pattern through the day, like you would get with saliva. But then again, you would get what's we we give you cortisone, which is the inactive form. So it tells you are you keeping your cortisol active or not? And we give you production, which is called metabolized cortisol. And then on top of it, we've added in some other things like melatonin and a few other, you know, nutritional and neurotransmitter organic acids. So definitely if somebody says, I just want to, I just need to know my testosterone, you know, or, you know, my, I mean, my total, my free, my SHBG. I'm like, yeah, go get it in the blood for sure. When I have pregnant women or women call and they say, I have a positive pregnancy test. I'm like, all right, go get a progesterone drawn in the blood because we don't have time to wait for it to come back in the Dutch test. I need to know that your spot progesterone right away. Um, thyroid, we don't, you know, gold standard accuracy, absolutely hands down is in the blood. We don't do it in our, in our urine test. There are some companies that are doing a few thyroid markers. Um, Mm -hmm. We still feel there's not enough research there and, you know, gold standards, the blood, and it's generally covered by insurance. So Mm -hmm. go for it. 
And so that's when, and then so with the saliva, um, again, because it's in the moment, we have then, we now have another test. It's a combination urine um, saliva because we, when we wanted to look at something called the cortisol awakening response. So it's the response your body has to making cortisol, to, to light coming in your eyes and then producing cortisol first thing in the morning. And you do it every 30 minutes for an hour. So as soon as your eyes open, 30 minutes later, 30 minutes after that. And so while um, some people could probably urinate on demand every 30 minutes, it's a pain. So we do the, um, these cotton swabs actually that you just stick in your mouth, get wet, and stick back in a tube on waking 30 minutes later, 30 minutes after that. And we hyper-focus on the first hour of your day. So now it's a combination. You urinate on these little strips of paper and you suck on these cotton swabs and we give you a whole lot of information. Mm-hmm. And do you ever test for pregnenolone in the blood? And when do you make the decision to use pregnenolone or not? I actually don't do it in the blood. Um, I have mixed feelings on testing pregnenolone only because it's usually um, so variable because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's made by so many glands. It's, you know, it's, it's often in the mitochondria of, of so many glands. When, when the body wants to make a hormone, it takes cholesterol and pulls it into the mitochondria and then converts it into pregnenolone as just one step on the way and moves on from there. Now I will use pregnenolone though. Um, I use it with um, like high stress, high anxiety, insomnia people. I will use it in, especially women who have low progesterone and have all those same symptoms. So, and I I use it in in an odd, in a, everyone thinks if you give pregnenolone, you'll raise progesterone directly and, and you don't, you won't. Because if you give pregnenolone the supplement, the ovaries don't pull up inside like, oh, hey, look, pregnenolone, and pull it in and convert it into progesterone. Again, it's, it pulls cholesterol into the mitochondria and goes from there. Um, mm-hmm. But pregnenolone turns into something called aloe, A-L-L-O, not the plant, but mm-hmm. A-L-L-O. <laughs> and aloe crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it, it uh, affects GABA receptors. GABA is your big inhibitory um, neurotransmitter. So it's calming, it's relaxing, it's soothing. And so when people take pregnenolone, they often feel less stressed, more calm, more relaxed, they can sleep. Um, and and they just it just helps their stress response, especially when you're in that hyper stress uh, response. And so I do like it. I do use it at smaller doses though. I know some people will use, again, it's like DHEA, they'll use 50 or 100 milligrams. And I'm like over here at 10. <laughs> Right. Maybe 20. <laughs> so that's when I use pregnenolone. And um, I'm not against testing it. I just, I just don't. Right. To, right. To be honest. How about you? What do you do? I don't. Yeah. I've, I don't, I can't remember the last time I actually tested it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I'll use it in, in the cases that you just described. So um, why don't we talk about application and and your favorite methods of hormone replacement so progesterone estrogen testosterone do you like uh creams injections sublingual pellets yeah um i'll be honest i don't use pellets i was never trained in pellet insertion but i do have you know a subset of patients who come in on pellets and um if they love it then they you know that's fine they can stay on them Um, And then as far as application, it honestly, it sort of depends on the person and the case. I don't do necessarily the same thing every time, except in a few things. So for example, vaginal dryness, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I will definitely use vaginal estriol and, and sometimes a tiny bit of vaginal DHEA with it. Um, because that, the, when it comes to dryness, estriol is the estrogen of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to chronic infections, though, um, you know, irritation, actually, actually it's estradiol. That's the estrogen of choice there. But I'll, so I will use that one consistently. When it comes to sleep, so women who say, um, is I'm, is I'm heading into menopause, my anxiety is worse, my sleep is worse. Part of the reason of that is they're losing, they're not ovulating anymore and not making progesterone. And so when you take oral progesterone, much like oral uh, pregnenolone, um, progesterone also turns into aloe, A-L-L-O, or it can, some of it does. And again, that crosses the blood-brain barrier and helps quite a bit with sleep and anxiety and feeling calm. But research is showing that the oral progesterone doesn't have the, um, they don't think it has the uterine protective effects. So if somebody's on estrogen and they're taking oral progesterone, it may not necessarily counter against um, maybe uterine hyperplasia. I'll be honest, I've never seen that in, in practice. When I've given estrogen and, and progesterone, and if it's oral progesterone, Knock on wood, I don't think I've had a patient yet who had, who's had uterine hyperplasia induced. But when I read some of these studies, I'm like, hmm, apparently topical is better. Topical progesterone is better for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if she, if she doesn't have, if she doesn't have um, sleep issues or anxiety issues, I, I mean, I definitely like topical progesterone. Um, I, like I said earlier with DHEA, I tend to use the drops. because I like women can, can micro uh, adjust the dose. With testosterone, I do tend to use topical. And then if she doesn't like topical or if she has little kids or if she's in, an, in a job or a position where she um, has to, like a, a body, like a massage therapist or physical therapist where her uh, hands, arms, you know, forearms are touching other people, then I, use, then I may switch and do sublingual uh, hormones instead. Because I find, and you, well, I don't, I mean, it just is, hormones are, they're fat soluble. And so when you rub them into your skin, if you don't do a very good job of rubbing it in um, or you don't wash your hands very well afterwards, you can just transfer it to the person next to you. Mm-hmm. Um, their lipoph- hormones are lipophilic. They like, they like fat. So, so if you put it on the hormone and then hug your spouse or hug your kids and you can just transfer it skin to skin. And we do see this quite a bit mm-hmm. at the lab, especially hormone testosterone. Men will rub their topical testosterone on and then his wife's testosterone's through the roof. And I'm like, mm-hmm. your husband on testosterone? Right. <laughs> He's transferring it. <laughs> so um, I don't do a lot of injections unless it's testosterone injections for men. I don't do other, you know, mm-hmm. right. injections. Um, and so, and then with estrogen, um, estrogen, I'm, it's a little, again, it depends on the woman. So there's, there's like the patch, which, you know, women who want, who need that sort of steady state or they're having severe hot flashes that's really impacting their life, I may try to start with the patch. Now, the patch is just estradiol. It's not a combination estradiol, estriol. Um, I do like sublingual. I do like topical. When, I mean, I like, I, I, with estrogen, I'm not as, again, it just, I guess it depends on the woman. But when it comes to the research for estrogen, estradiol, and, and dementia, Alzheimer's, um, not cardiovascular, but not clotting, but like the good part of cardiovascular health. It's all been on oral estradiol, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. um, not so much on topical or sublingual. And so, but if you take oral estradiol um, and you have 
clot risk, you have to be very careful because it will mm-hmm. increase your clot risk. Right. So again, I mean, I know I sound all over the board, but it's, again, it's that sort of functional individual medicine. It sort of depends on the person. And you may find, as you, I mean, you experience this, but people listening may say, well, I've been doing topical, like you said, and I feel no different. And I'm like, all right, well, it's either the dose is wrong or the administration is wrong. So switch it up, switch to sublingual, mm-hmm. or maybe you need oral, or maybe you need the patch instead. Every woman is different. Or the women will come in and say, can I try, you know, oral progesterone? I'm like, yeah, you know, if it fits, yeah, sure. And then they'll notice nothing. I'm like, all right, well, either you don't need it, it ultimately, or oral's not for you. Let's do sublingual or topical. Right. And like with men, I mean, they, they'll, they'll try a, a gel or a cream and feel nothing. And then just a single injection and they're, they're yeah. like, wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> not the truth. I do, and you, I don't know if you do this too, but I do, I have men as well who say, um, you know, I have, you know, kids at home or I'm a, a body worker, I'm a trainer, I'm a massage therapist. And then I don't tend to do topical testosterone with them. Um, I do tend mm-hmm. to recommend injection instead because oh, right. I, just, I just see the transfer so much that mm-hmm. it's, it's sure. concerning. <laughs> it's concerning to me. Yeah. So why don't we close with uh, your favorite adrenal adaptogens and and when do you decide if you want to use phosphatidylserine or not oh that's a good question well i'll say my my favorite um sort of adrenal in general is cordyceps Mm -hmm. uh cordyceps the mushroom because it research especially in chinese medicine has shown that it's really helpful for hypothalamic pituitary communication so again when we're talking from the brain down Mm-hmm. Um, I really like cordyceps because it affects the brain and, and supports the adrenals. And, it's, and cordyceps is just good for so many things. And that, and I really like the mushroom food group. Um, I put mushrooms on everything and in everything. So yeah. <laughs> if you don't like mushrooms, then we should probably not hang out because I put right. them in everything. Yeah. Um, but so cordyceps is probably my favorite at the moment. Um, and then phosphatidylserine um, I do use, uh, especially when somebody has high cortisol at night. So mm-hmm. I will use it when they do the Dutch test and I see their cortisol go up instead of down at night. And of course, they're complaining of sleep issues, insomnia, they wake often. And so I like phosphatidylserine because it helps slow ACTH, it helps improve cortisol receptors, it helps. Um, improve plasticity in the brain. So reminding the brain and this basic analogy, like, Hey, you know, like we sleep at night, we sleep at night, we sleep at night, like stop, stop winding up. We need to wind down. And so Mm -hmm. that's when I'll use phosphatidylserine. Excellent. Yeah. Well, this has been really great, Dr. Jones. Um, Any, anywhere you'd like people to find you online? Yeah. So there's two places. One of course is at dutchtest.com. And I should say Dutch um, is an acronym. We don't test for Dutch heritage, which I get asked. (laughs) Uh, It does stand for dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. So dutchtest.com. I'm also super active. I do a lot, a lot, a lot of education on Instagram uh, because I'm a visual person. So I like all the pictures, Mm -hmm. Um, which, so my Instagram handle is dr.carriejones. And you can learn as much as you want about hormones because that's all I post about. Good, good. All right. Well, this was excellent. Uh, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This, is, this was lots of information, lots of knowledge dropped. 
Yeah. So to all the listeners, go to drhedberg.com and I will have a transcript posted there and any links that we talked about in the article section. So take care, everyone. And I will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels like Facebook and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.